0: Um it's a great pleasure to welcome you um, to this inaugural lecture as Master of Birkbeck. Um, and I think a particular pleasure um, on this occasion, it's always a pleasure to chair Inaugurals, but it's quite rare, I think, in fact, probably almost unique in my experience um, to chair an inaugural lecture of someone who has had such a stellar um, career already, a long way, I'm sure, to go um, yet. But you know, how many people are appointed as a lecturer in 2010? Uh, he took a little bit of time to get to senior lecturer. It took him three years, which is reasonably quick, but not dramatically quick. Um, but then to go in one year from senior lecturer to professor, missing out the reader stage, um, is an extraordinary achievement. And I think it's an extraordinary achievement based on the fact that, you know, we didn't sit at the promotions committee and say, Matt Longo is a nice fellow, let's make him a professor. Um, it was based on a record of a- exemplary achievement in terms of high quality publications. People talk about salami slicing when you lo- produce a lot of publications. It's rare to see this sort of number, I think 53 since you came here from your CV, and high quality papers in high quality journals. So I think it's a remarkable career. Long may it continue at Birkbeck. And in the meanwhile, let's sit back and enjoy Matthew Longo's inaugural lecture entitled Spatial Distortions in Perception and Cognition.
1: Thank you, and thank you all for being here. It's really um, a a wonderful occasion to see so many friends and, and, and colleagues here as well, and to be able to tell you a little bit about my work. And I'll turn the microphone on. So I'll be talking about spatial distortions in perception and cognition, and my work as an experimental psychologist focuses primarily on studying healthy people. But I want to just preface what I'll be saying by saying a little bit about the, the curious and bizarre um, and, and, and utterly odd distortions that are seen in many sorts of clinical disorders. Um, so we have cases like the phenomenon of phantom limbs where somebody who has their limb amputated, of course this is the most salient fact about their life at the moment, that they've lost a limb, and yet they continue to experience the limb being there. Um, If you go to Trafalgar Square, at the the, the top of, of the column there, you can see Horatio Nelson with his arm missing, his limb pinned there, and he experienced a phantom right arm, which he interpreted as proof of an immaterial soul. And his reasoning had a certain logic, because if the subjective experience of his arm could continue to exist after the arm had been physically annihilated, why should we think that the body as a whole is any different? Though the, just like the arm, the f- entire physical body could be physically annihilated, and yet its subjective experience remain. Um, that's not a compelling argument. Um, I don't don't think in reality, but it has a certain it has a certain logic, and elegance to it. We see things like the 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 bizarre delusions of people with eating disorders, who to anyone else appear entirely emaciated and yet insist that they're horribly fat. We have conditions like asoma a condition described by McDonald Critchley, working just over there on Queen Square, where following damage to the right parietal lobe, the patient will insist that the entire left side of their body has vanished. Things like misoplegia, a case where a patient, again following damage to the right parietal lobe, will insist that their left arm or limb has become evil. Um, Things like body dysmorphia disorder, where somebody is fixated that somebody who appears perfectly attractive to anyone else um, is fixated that some specific bit of their body is horrifically ugly. Cases like somatoparaphrenia, again, following damage to the right parietal lobe, a patient will insist that their left limb, their left arm, for example, isn't theirs. It belongs to somebody else. Um, Oliver Sacks gives the story of, of a patient who kept falling out of bed in the middle of 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 the night. And the nurses would come in and help the patient back into bed. And 10 minutes later, she'd fall out of bed again. And finally, the nurses say, What's what's going on? Why are you falling out of bed? And the woman said, I see what you guys are doing, you're you're putting this arm in in, in the bed with me and they had no idea what she was talking about and they finally realized that it was her own left arm which she believed was somebody else's arm and found disgusting of course to have this severed arm in bed with her and so was throwing this this severed arm out of the bed and and tumbling along, along with it. And perhaps strangest of all, we have the, the, the condition of body integrity identity disorder. These are sometimes called the wannabe amputees. These are people who, despite having a what appears physically to be a perfectly intact body, despite having perfectly intact sensation as far as it can be measured, insist that they would be more complete without some bit of their body. Without their left foot, they would feel whole. Uh, we have a, a curious inversion of, of the case of phantom limbs where it seems that somehow somebody has a negative phantom a part of their body which is there but which they experience as not not belonging and it's an incredible list and and i i i, I raise it they, these conditions have attracted a, a vast amount of interest um, of course within psychiatry within neurology um, but also within within psychology, and I think within the population at large, and they're they're compelling, I think, because of the sheer strangeness, because of the incredible contrast that they present to the ordinary experience of our body, which is so immediate. We experience our body from inside in an intimate and immediate way, and it's just impossible to imagine what it would be like to to think that the left side of your body had disappeared. And so there's been a lot of of interest in these conditions, rightfully so, but I think that the, the, the striking disconnect that we see between our own ordinary experience of our body and the bizarre um, list of, of, of conditions I've described can, can make it sort of seem that, well, yeah, most of us, we're nothing like the, these people, you know, we, we don't have any of those things, and there's been an often implicit assumption, I think, that healthy people have pretty much accurate and veridical representations of their body. And the work I'll be talking about today is pushing on this concept and suggesting that in many ways, um, distortions of, of the way we perceive our body are a perfectly normal part of healthy perception and cognition. But before I get to talking about the work that I've been doing, I want to say a, a bit more generally on the topic of spatial distortion and perception. Because at some level, the idea of spatial distortion may may seem perverse in in, in some way, because it seems very natural to think about the goal of perception is to create a veridical model of the world. We want to perceive the world accurately. If we're perceiving the world in a distorted way, how could we possibly act in the world um, in, in an appropriate way? And again, there's a certain logic to that, and it it is true that ideally we want to get an accurate and veridical perception of of the world. But on the other hand, um, Daniel Wolpert, the the Cambridge uh, neuroscientist, has emphasized that really the only reason we have a brain, we talk about, people like me talk about perception. Other people talk about language, about social cognition, decision-making, reasoning. Daniel Wolpert insists that no, no, no. The reason we have a brain, the reason we have a nervous system is to move and to control action. Because if we couldn't control our body, if we couldn't actually move, then the whole rest of the nervous system would be pointless. There's no point in understanding what's going on if you can't actually engage and do things to go along with that. And distortion, I think, comes about in its first instance because movement is enhanced by having specialization. If we, if you suppose you had homogenous tactile sensitivity all over your body surface, an act like tying your shoelaces would be completely impossible. What makes an action like an everyday action, which is simple to us, but is extraordinarily complex from a motor control perspective, tying our shoelaces, using a pencil. Um, typing on a keyboard, combing our hair. These are things that are made possible specifically because we have certain bits of the skin that have exquisite tactile sensitivity. And that's made possible because there are other parts of the skin that have wretched tactile sensitivity. And that's, that's where distortion comes in. And we'll, I'll, I'll get to some examples um, of that. I want to start by going back to the 1930s and talking about the work of of this gentleman here, Wilder Penfield, who was a a neurosurgeon working in Montreal. And he was working with patients who had intractable epilepsy. Um, The the selection of anticonvulsant medications at the time was much more limited than it is today. Um, And he was working with patients for whom there wasn't any way that they had to treat um, epileptic seizures And so what Penfield was doing was surgeries where he would open the subject's skull and go in and try to find the focus of the epileptic seizures and remove that bit of the brain. Now, ironically, the brain itself does not have any nerves. And so you can poke around in the brain and the subject doesn't feel anything. So Penfield was able to perform these surgeries using only local anesthesia. So he would apply local anesthesia to the scalp, open the skull, but the patient is awake. And here you can see this is um, Penfield's surgical amphitheater. And here's the the patient undergoing the procedure, who's awake and is able to report his subjective experiences of of what's going on. Um, This shows an actual example from the brain. And you can see that Penfield has labeled specific locations Um, In this low-tech way by by putting these these slips of paper directly on onto the person's brain and what he could do is he could inject electrical currents Into different bits of the brain and the patient could report what their experience was Or he could see what? What behavioral results ensued and this is is relevant to the issue of distortion because of the seminal work that Penfield and Boldry did um, in this this 1937 paper where they studied the primary motor cortex, which is on the precentral gyrus here. So we have here the frontal lobe of the brain. And the very last, very back part of the frontal lobe is the precentral gyrus, or the, the primary motor cortex. And what Penfield found when he would stimulate bits of the primary motor cortex is he could evoke twitches in different parts of the patient's body and by systematically applying stimulation to different bits of the precentral gyrus he could map out which bits of the cortex cared about or controlled which bits of the body surface and what he found so now what we're seeing is a a, a slice this way so if you're sort of cutting along here so this is the precentral gyrus here and he could map out systematically Where stimulation to bits of the motor cortex would evoke twitches and there are two important Aspects of this the first part is that the map is Extremely systematic it might have been haphazard it might have been that um the same way that if you've got say the the cables that control your tv and your dvd player um, and your nintendo wii when you sort of stick them in the cupboard underneath the television if you come back a year later there's not going to be any spatially systematic organization between where in the cupboard you look and um you know where if you were to to sever the wire which bit of equipment would no longer work the the wires um, in their estimable way become all jumbled up and really if if we think about neurons as as simply connected to each other through axons and dendrites it ought to be the same sort of thing the spatial organization of them doesn't really matter what matters is what's wired up to what else and you know we might just kind of expect that this is going to be um, you know as if you had your TV cabinet but with Four billion devices rather than just the four or five that you actually have and that this would be a complete mess It's not a complete mess and that's fascinating that you could go from here We're looking now in the very center of the brain where you sort of go up up and then all the way down into the center here That here in the in the crevice here stimulation would evoke um, Twitches of the toes And as he would stimulate a bit farther up, you would get twitches in the ankles, a bit farther up in the knee, farther up in the leg. There is a systematic map of the body surface. And that's an important property. I'm not going to be talking a lot more about that specific property, though I think it's a a critically important one. Um, It shows that there's a systematic um, spatial organization of the body surface um, on the brain. But the second property. Is equally important and is actually more relevant to my lecture today and it's that if you look at the proportions of different parts of the body in this map they're not directly related to the physical size of the body parts being controlled what they're related to is the dexterity of the body parts being controlled and and this this makes obvious sense that the The the, the manual dexterity we have with our fingers is exquisite, and that exquisite manual dexterity requires that a disproportionate share of the motor cortex be devoted to control of the fingers. Same with uh, the lips and the mouth. Um, And when you compare them to, say, the torso, the trunk here, which is, is just very tiny. And it's this disproportionate representation of dexterous bits of the body that is is very relevant for the issue of spatial distortion, because this is where spatial distortion comes in at the first instance. A anatomically accurate map of the body surface here in the motor cortex would give additional representation to the trunk, and maybe that would be important if we were trying to hold open the the kitchen door while we're coming in with a tray. It might be useful to have a bit more dexterity with the pectoral muscles. But the cost is we wouldn't be able to tie our shoelaces. We wouldn't be able to, do, to use a pencil. We wouldn't be able to do the extraordinarily complex skills that for us, because we have this dramatic overrepresentation of the digits in the motor cortex, come naturally to us. If we had homogenous dexterity in all of the muscles in the body, we would overall be incredibly clumsy. It's better to have exquisite dexterity in a small set of muscles. Then to have equal dexterity everywhere though that the cost is that it introduces spatial distortion If we now just go to the other side this here is the central sulcus Which divides the frontal lobe up here from the parietal lobe over here and the primary motor cortex Which I just described is the precentral gyrus just in front of the central sulcus the very back of the frontal lobe if we now just come back behind the central sulcus and we look at the post central gyrus The front part of the parietal lobe now when Penfield would stimulate bits of the postcentral gyrus he wouldn't evoke twitches or movements in different parts of the body rather the subject would report feeling tingling pins and needles sensation occasionally pain in spatially specific bits of the body and again by stimulating different bits of the postcentral gyrus Penfield could make a map of the entire body surface that has the same properties. It has the, the property of a clear spatial topography, the property known as somatotopy, and more critically for my talk this evening, the property of magnification of, now we're talking about sensitive, tactilely sensitive skin surfaces um, compared to less sensitive skin surfaces. And generally, there's a good correspondence here. Generally, the parts of the body which are sensitive to touch are also dexterous. So the, the hands, for example, and the mouth have big representations um, in, both, in both cases. But there are, there are um, some differences, um, for example. So we get swallowing here, the throat, in terms of motor control, but we don't really have much tactile sensation um, there as well. So there are differences between, the, between these maps. So there t- just to reiterate, there are two key properties to these these maps that Penfield described. The property of somatotopy, the fact that there's an organized spatial topography of the body as you go across the body surface, and the property of magnification. The property of magnification being that the relative size of body parts in these maps is not related to the physical size of the body parts, but is related in the case of the motor cortex to their dexterity, and in the case of the somatosensory cortex to their sensitivity. And we can think about that by sort of imagining if we had a person whose physical body had the proportions that we see in these maps, these maps which are often now called the Penfield homunculus to refer to the idea that there is this little person there strewn out along the surface of the cortex, but if we were to create a physical person who had the proportions, not of our own physical body, but the proportions that we see in somatotopic maps, it would look something like this. Now really, we, at some level, this doesn't really make complete sense because when we look at the somatosensory cortex here, for example, what, we're see, what is being magnified isn't really body parts in, in, in a rigorous way, but is individual bits of the skin. So, for example, this this guy here wouldn't just have big hands. He would have enormous fingertips, even relative to the rest of his finger. The palm of his hand would be much larger than the back of his hand, because, of course, the palm of our hand is more sensitive than the back of our hand. But you can't really depict a three-dimensionally coherent person that has uh, a bigger palm of his hand than a bigger back of his hand. But just as an an illustrative example, I think this is a compelling way of of thinking about what is the nature of the distortion that we see. Turning to some more recent work, um, we can also ask, how can we quantify the spatial distortion um, induced by these maps? So this is um, an elegant study done by Migranca Sur and his colleagues John Koss and Michael Merzenich. And this is now a study using invasive neurophysiology in macaque monkeys. And what they've done is recorded here now along um, the post-central gyrus, the primary somatosensory cortex. They can touch the monkey at various places on the body surface. And they can record from individual neurons in the somatosensory cortex to get a sense of where on the body surface do individual neurons in somatosensory cortex care about. And they can use that to make a map here of the post-central gyrus uh, showing the different parts of the body. Um, and there are a couple of interesting thing, thing, things here. Um, I won't go into, into a lot of detail. The first thing to note is that the, the two um, parallel areas, um, area 3b and 1, which are distinguished by Brodmann based on their cytoarchitectonic properties, actually have distinct maps of, of the body, which are in general parallel but you do see differences. For example, if you look at the the fingers here, there are differences in the relative size of the digits and such. The reason I bring up this study is that we can also now think about how can we take this data and quantify the relative distortion of different parts of the body. And what Sir and colleagues did is they developed a, a, a metric that they simply call magnification. Now this is a dimensionless measure that assesses the relative Magnification the relative disproportionate representation of different bits of the skin so magnification is a ratio of the physical size um, Sorry a a ratio of the size of The cortical sheet devoted to the representation of a, of a, a, a bit of the body surface with the surface area of that body surface itself. So this is a dimensionless measure because area, centimeters squared, appears both in the numerator and in the denominator. So it's a ratio of an area of the cortical surface to an area of the skin surface. And what they've done is they just plotted this for different parts of the monkey's body here in two different areas in somatosensory cortex. So we can see if we look at the hand, Um, and by the hand they mean the glabrous skin, of the palm of the hand, the magnification is something like 10 to the minus second. And what that means is that the the cortical representation, the bit of the monkey somatosensory cortex that represents the hand, is about one one hundredth the size of the skin surface being represented on the hand. When we get down to say the upper arm or the trunk, for example, the magnification is two orders of magnitude smaller, 10 to the minus fourth. So what we see is a two order of magnitude difference in the amount of magnification as we go from a sensitive part of the skin, like like the fingers, to less sensitive parts of the skin, like the upper arm or the trunk. So an extremely large distortion. I mean, large enough that this sort of image probably underestimates the magnitude of the spatial distortion um, induced. Uh, the other interesting thing we can see in this figure: this now plots magnification uh, here on the x-axis as a function of different body parts, and on the y-axis, it's plotted the size of what are called the receptive field of individual neurons. The receptive field is the area of the skin to which a single neuron in the somatosensory cortex responds. It's a, it's a measure of the of the window that a given neuron cares about. And so this is the area of a receptive field in square millimeters. And you can see that there is a striking relationship here between magnification and receptive field area. So the higher magnification here, when we look at the hand where the magnification is 10 to the minus second, we can see that the hand has tiny receptive fields. Now that makes sense because if you have a tiny receptive field, if an individual neuron cares about a very focal bit of the skin, the spatial resolution is going to be exquisite. Because if that neuron is activated, you know unambiguously where the stimulus is located. It's in that little tiny receptive field. If the receptive field is big, when we get to the trunk and the the upper arm, a big receptive field, if the neuron responds when something is presented, say, on the entire left side of the trunk, if that neuron is active, you, you only have a very vague sense of where the stimulus must be located. So this systematic, this almost perfectly linear relationship between magnification on the one hand, magnification essentially being how many neurons are representing a bit of skin, with the size of the receptive fields, about the size of the windows, suggests that the receptive fields are sort of tiling the skin in a spatially coherent way. If we have more neurons representing a skin area, the receptive fields are going to shrink appropriately so that they're spatially tiling Um, the skin in a coherent way. So this isn't just true in touch. Of course, it is, in in the case of touch, we have our our fingertips, we have our lips, areas of exquisite sensitivity, but it's true in vision as well. So our visual field on the retina, sensitivity is not homogenous. Rather, there's a central part of the retina, known as the fovea, that has exquisite spatial sensitivity um, compared to the, the periphery, which has very poor sensitivity, we don't really notice this because our eyes are moving all the time. And when our eyes move, the point of the eye movements is specifically to get the high acuity fovea um, region of our retina on the things that we're interested in looking at. So this is now a study by Roger Tutell at Harvard and his colleagues. And what they did was they showed, this is again a macaque monkey, and they showed a monkey this sort of dartboard pattern here and they injected a dye into the visual cortex of the monkey such that when, the, when, when a neuron fired, it would stain the cortical surface. So they show the monkey this sort of pattern here. And they then kill the monkey. And they look at the surface of the cortex. And they can see here, you can just see visually, the staining of the cortical surface. And the same two properties that I emphasize in terms of Penfield's maps, in the case of touch and motor control are equally apparent here in the primary visual cortex. So first we can see, just you can see the the dartboard. And the fact that you can see the dartboard tells you that there's a clear spatial topography in the visual representation of the stimulus. Nearby areas of the visual stimulus have activated nearby representations of the cortical surface. And that's why we can see the picture of what the monkey saw here on the the, the surface of the cortex. In the case of a vision, we call this retinotopy rather than somatotopy, because now here what we're saying is that there is a spatially coherent topographical representation of the monkey's retina on the visual cortex. The second property, is, you can see here, the monkey has, has foveated, has put the high resolution center of their retina here at the center of the dartboard. And you can see, look at these wedges here at the very center are dramatically smaller in area than these wedges out here in the periphery of the visual system. But if we look here in the monkey's cortex, the ratio in area between this and this is dramatically less than the ratio between this and this. There's a spatial expansion in the visual cortex of the foveal region, the center of the visual cortex. So this is um, a phenomenon of magnification, exactly analogous to the magnification of the Penfield homunculus that I described a moment ago. And I want to now switch from this background material to now talking about not just distortion that we see in the representation in the brain at a low level, but to think, how do these distortions affect the way we perceive the world? Long before we had any idea of these sorts of properties of neural representations, before we even um, knew that there was a visual cortex, um, Helmholtz had identified a curious illusion, which is interesting to interpret in this way. So this grid here, if you see it from the distance that you're seeing it, is obviously um, curved. That you can sort of see that there's this bowing here and the the squares here out in the periphery are much bigger than the ones in the center but if you look at this with one eye from this distance here that's marked by this line it appears to be a perfectly rectangular grid it appears to be a perfect chessboard pattern if you're fixating directly in the center and the idea is that what we're seeing here is exactly a perceptual echo of this distortion that we can see in the brain. The center parts of the visual field are perceptually expanded, the peripheral parts are perceptually shrunk in, and that offsets the the distortion which Helmholtz had built into the physical stimulus here. So the idea is is that we, we ordinarily, as we go about our world, don't notice this, but if we have a properly designed stimulus, we can actually measure a negative subjective experience associated with the um, spatial distortion that we see in the cortical surface. So that we we can say that there may be perceptual echoes of this distortion that we see in the brain in our subjective experience of the world. Now, of course, the magnitude of this illusion is dramatically smaller than you would predict if the cortical magnification was was in one-to-one correspondence with our subjective experience of the world. I mean, if if we perceive the world just like this, this would need to be dramatically more curved and warped um, in order for it to appear rectangular to us. So generally speaking, we have what a perceptual psychologist would call call visual constancy. We perceive the physical properties of the world more or less, but it may be imperfect. There may be a slight, what, again, a perceptual psychologist might call an underconstancy of perception, that these sorts of distortions are, are corrected at some level of visual processing, but imperfectly, and in a way that leaves a residual echo. Returning now to the issue of somatosensation and touch, um, we have another 19th century physiologist, um, this one, Ernst Weber, who described um, An analogous type of illusion and what Weber observed he was one of the first physiologists to systematically investigate the sense of touch and what he found is that as he took um, a compass with two points and he just moved it across his own skin that it felt to him that as he moved the points from a region of relatively low sensitivity like the arm to a region of relatively higher sensitivity like the palm of the hand that it felt to him as if the distance between the points had increased so If we think about this, if we have a sensitive skin surface and a less sensitive skin surface, and we apply here, I've used this barbell to indicate a tactile distance, so two points at a given distance apart that are applied to the skin. In this case, if we apply physically identical stimuli to the two locations, the idea is that our subjective experience expands the body part with high sensitivity relative to the body part with low sensitivity and so we perceive the stimulus on the hand as bigger than the one on the forehead. Now again, the magnitude of this effect is dramatically less than you would expect just by looking at the Penfield homunculus itself. Um, so um, you may remember that I pointed out, when looking at the data from Suring colleagues, that the difference in magnification between the hand and the trunk was two orders of magnitude, a hundredfold. Um, and if you present one stimulus on the hand and one on the, on the trunk, the one on the hand does indeed feel bigger, but not 100 times bigger. In fact, not even twice as big. Um, uh, I, I don't have exact numbers, but, but you might say 30 or 40% bigger. Um, so the, the magnitude of the perceptual illusion is probably less than 1% of the, the, the distortion that is there at a low level in the somatosensory cortex. So again, there's a large amount of correction in here, but still we can find perceptual illusions which give us some window into influences that these low-level spatial distortions nevertheless have on the way we spatially perceive the world. So now I'll get to, to some of my own work. This is a study that I did with Patrick Haggard. And we are interested in applying the logic that Weber had used to comparing the relative perceived size of stimuli on different skin surfaces that had different sensitivities to look at the shape of the way we represent or the way we represent and experience body shape. So the idea was that rather than presenting stimuli on two different skin surfaces, we could present stimuli on a single skin surface here the back of the hand, but vary their orientation. So we could have a stimuli where the two points ran along the proximal distal axis of the limb running along the length of the hand, or we could just rotate the stimulus 90 degrees and look at a stimulus that runs across the width of the hand and the idea was that if the subject represents their hand as long and slender then the perceived distance between the points running in this direction should be perceptually expanded relative to stimuli running in this orientation and conversely if the subject represented their hand as squat and fat then we should get a perceptual expansion in the opposite direction and subjects should experience these points as farther apart than these points, even when they're physically identical. So to a perceptual psychophysicist, this is a straightforward question to ask. What we can do is we can do a simple experiment where on each trial we present two pairs of points, one pair with the stimuli running along the length of the hand, the other pair with the stimuli running across the width of the hand, and we can ask the subject which of the two felt bigger. And across trials, we can manipulate the relative ratio of size between the two stimuli. And what we want to do is to titrate, to sort of triangulate and figure out what is the ratio of the two stimuli such that they are perceived by the subject as being the same size. This is what we call the point of subjective equality. Um, Now, the key point is that if the subject perceives their hand veridically the point of subjective equality should be a ratio of one. They should feel subjectively equal when they are, in fact, equal. That is, their ratio should be one. If we take the ratio of the across to the along stimulus, if the subject represents the space of their, of their hand as long and slender, then this ratio should, should need to be um, Sorry, if we take the ratio of the across to the along stimulus, the, the ratio in this case should need to be bigger than one in order for them to be perceived as equal. That is, the stimulus running across the width of the hand needs to be physically bigger than the stimulus running across the length of the hand in order for them to be subjectively experienced as the same size. And conversely, in this condition, um, the ratio should need to be less than one That is, the along stimulus needs to be physically bigger than the across stimulus for them to be perceived as subjectively the same. So that's a straightforward sort of experiment to run. Um, So we look at this using something that we call a psychometric function, where we have some physical parameter on the x-axis. In this case, it's the ratio of the across to the along stimulus. We plot some subjective measure on the y-axis. In this case, it's the proportion of trials in which the subject judges the across stimulus is bigger. And what we're interested in, we expect this function, as as this ratio goes from small to big, we expect the function to increase. So over here, 0.5, that means that the across stimulus is only half as big as the along stimulus. So we expect that in that case, the subject is very unlikely to say that the across one is bigger. Conversely, when the ratio is two, The across stimulus is twice as big as the along stimulus and we expect the subject to almost always be saying that the across stimulus is bigger the interesting thing to a psychophysicist is when we look at this function where does that function cross 50 percent because 50 percent tells us where the person is indifferent where the person feels like they're just guessing where half the time they're saying that the across stimulus is bigger, half the time that the long stimulus is bigger, and we call that the point of subjective equality for the obvious reason that it gives us a case where it seems like the subject is reporting indifference to, whether, to which one is bigger, which we interpret as they perceive them as the same. So if the subject perceives their hand as long and slender, the point of subjective equality should be over here on the right side of the graph, the ratio of the across to the along stimulus should need to be bigger than one for them to be perceived as the same. And conversely, if the subject perceives their hand as squat and fat, we should the point of subjective equality should be here over on the left side of the graph. The ratio between the across to the along stimulus should need to be less than one for them to be perceived as the same size. And what we find is, is that the, the fat hand model clearly wins. So here at the ratio of one, when the stimuli were in fact the same, nearly 80% of the time the subject is saying that the across stimulus is bigger. And the point of subjective equality is here at about 0.7. And what that means is that there's about a 40% bias to perceive the stimuli running across the width of the hand as physically bigger than exactly the same physical stimulus running across the length of the hand. and I think I'm taking too much time, so I'll go quickly um, through these things. But one idea we had is that we can relate this to what we know about the spatial properties of receptive fields on the skin. So if we look at data, again, this will be data from invasive neurophysiology in monkeys and in cats, but if we look at what is the area of skin, what is the window That an individual neuron in the somatosensory cortex cares about they tend to be ovals on the limb they tend to look something like this ovals with the long axis running in this direction so essentially the receptive fields are smaller across the width of the body than across the length of the body and i had mentioned that in the study of sir and colleagues that there was a systematic relationship between the magnification of a skin surface and receptive field size, which I I wanted to argue suggested that there was a coherent, spatially coherent tiling of of the representation of the skin surface. So one way of thinking about perceived size is that perceived size is a function of counting how many receptive field boundaries have been crossed. So if you have a case where there's an oval-shaped receptive field, now perceived distance ought to be expanded in the direction of the short axis of the ovals. That is that there should be a perceptual expansion in this direction. Now that makes an interesting prediction because if we look now, instead of looking at at the, the hairy skin on the back of the hand, we look at what's called the glabrous skin on the palm of the hand. There are two differences in the organization of the receptive fields. The first difference is that the receptive fields are just smaller. That's just because the palm of the hand is more sensitive than the back of the hand but the more relevant difference is they're also more circular. So that if perceived distance is a function of counting receptive field boundaries, we shouldn't expect the same asymmetry as a function of orientation if we look at the glabrous skin compared to the hairy skin. So we ran exactly the same experiment, but now on half the blocks, stimulated the the hairy skin on the back of the hand, um, just like in the first experiment I described, and in the other half, Stimulated um, the glabrous skin of the palm and what we find is that again, we replicate this bias very clearly Um, The 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 dorsal surface the hairy skin, but there's no apparent bias on the palm So this shows a relationship that looks very much like what we see um, In the geometry of individual receptive fields Um, finally, we just ran a control experiment where we wanted to see, is this really related to orientation on the hand, or could it be orientation relative to a torso-centered frame of reference or to an eye-centered frame of reference? So we just compared a condition with a hand in this orientation versus rotated 90 degrees, um, and we find exactly the same results again. So it's very much defined in a hand-centered reference frame. And I'll just skip, I think, just due to time constraints over the next few slides and I want to switch now from talking about touch to just talk very briefly um, about proprioception, which is our ability to perceive the spatial position um, of our our limbs in external space. And you might think that, you know, there are physiological signals that are telling us where our limbs are in space, that there's something like a GPS signal. They're sort of telling us these are you know, the latitude and longitude um, of, and height off the ground of, I don't know, my wrist, for example. But if we think about what receptors are actually doing, our limb position is specified by receptors in the joints that are sensitive to the angle of the joint, in the muscle tendons themselves that specify whether the muscle is, is extended or flexed, in skin that are sensitive to the stretch. And those tell us something about the angles of our joints in the case of the shoulder relative to, to vertical, in the case of the elbow of the, the forearm relative to the upper arm. But if we want to think about a question like where is my wrist in external space compared to my shoulder, just as a matter of high school trigonometry, knowing these angles isn't enough information. I also need to know the links. I need to know the distances between the shoulder and the elbow, between the elbow and the wrist. And that's information which isn't specified by any immediate physiological signal. So again, what Patrick Haggard and I did was devise an experiment to try to measure this representation. And the task was very simple. The subject puts their hand on a board, we cover the hand up, and as is typical in many experiments investigating proprioception, we ask the subject, where does it feel like the tip of your index finger is? The subject gives a response, it feels like the tip of my index finger is there. Now, traditionally, experiments that have investigated proprioception have looked at the so-called error of localization. They've treated the, the error as a vector, a deviation, and you can do different things. You can sort of say, well, how, how wrong is the subject? Um, what is their overall accuracy? What is the length of this vector? Or you can say, what is the direction of this vector? You can sort of say, if we do multiple trials, what is the variable error? How different is this error if the subject does the same judgment 10 different times? But if we're interested in the issue of what is the representation of the size and shape of the hand, this information doesn't really tell us anything. And we can think about this, suppose that we ask the subject not now to judge just a single location, not just the tip of their index finger, but we ask them to judge also where does it feel like the tip of your index finger is? And where does it feel like the knuckle of your index finger is? And we now have two judgments. And again, we, we could look at the errors of localization. We could compare their links, We could see are they pointing in the same direction. But none of that really tells us anything about how big does the subject represent their finger is. To get at that, what we need to look at is where does the subject judge the tip of their index finger relative to where they judge the knuckle of their index finger, and forget entirely about these errors of localization. It doesn't matter if the subject, in this data I've made up, that the subject judges their fingers a bit farther up and to the right of its true location. What we care about is just the internal configuration, the distance between the judgments themselves, completely ignoring the fact that there is a constant error, the fact that the the judgments are translated Relative to their true locations and so if we now think about getting judgments of the tip and the knuckle of all five fingers Looking at these ten error vectors isn't useful What we want to do is to measure the internal configuration of the points We want to look at the relative position of the judgments with respect to each other completely ignoring for this analysis the location of 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 the judgments relative to the true location. So we want to compare the internal configuration of the responses to the internal configuration of the subject's hand in reality, subtracting away errors of location and rotation. So we'll essentially just take the subject's map of their hand and just translate it and rotate it so that it's aligned with their actual hand so that we can compare the shape of the internal configuration. So The task is very simple. The subject puts their hand on a board. We have a camera that's suspended above that's taking pictures. We have a ruler here that appears in the image so we can convert between units defined in pixels to units defined in centimeters. And Then we cover the subject's hand up and we ask them to use this stick to indicate where they perceive different bits of their hand as being. Each time they point, we get a picture of where they're pointing. I can now say what are the pixel coordinates of their judgment and um, use that to construct a map of the way they represent their hand. So this is data from a first experiment with 18 subjects. So in red here, we have the actual shape of the subject's hands. Now what I've done here is I've used a statistical method called Procrustes alignment to, put, to rotate and translate the, the maps of each subject's hand so they're direct, lying directly on top of each other. And what that lets us do, you can sort of see, here's the cluster of the the tip of the little finger from 18 subjects. What this lets us do is construct a grand average hand shape for the subject. So this is a shape of the subject's left hand on average. And now in green, I've done exactly the same thing, but with the perceptual maps that we've constructed in this way. And again, I can make a grand average uh, perceptual map of the subject's hand. Um, And there are two things that are immediately apparent. The first is that people overestimate the width of the hand relative to its actual shape. And the second one is that they underestimate the length of the fingers relative to their actual shape. Um, I won't talk a lot more about the finger length, but the overestimation of hand width, and certainly the relative overestimation of width to length is, I think, very much analogous to the bias I described at the beginning um, or in the the previous section in touch where there generally seems to be a bias to represent the hand as squatter and fatter than its actual shape. This is data from a control experiment where again, the same that we did in touch, we wanted to make sure that these were biases in the represented shape of the hand and not biases related to the control of the hand that was doing the pointing, not biases related to foreshortening in the subject's visual experience, not biases related to a torso centered were a reticentric frame of reference. So we compared a condition with the hand in this orientation to one where the hand was just rotated 90 degrees. The biases or the distortions are almost exactly the same in the two cases. So they're very much defined in a hand-centered frame of reference. This shows a third experiment comparing the left hand and the right hand and they're almost exactly mirror symmetric distortions in the two cases. And I'd like to just now switch a little bit and just talk about some other ways that we can think about these sorts of results. Um, And I wanna talk about this idea that Darcy Thompson, uh, the eminent Scottish uh, biologist um, had almost a century ago. And among many things in in his book on growth and form, um, Thompson developed the idea that we can think about differences in shape in terms of transformations. so he, he gave examples like there are these two species of piranha, which if we just look at them, they look quite different in many ways. But Thompson's idea was that actually, if we were to think about how we would take one fish and stretch it or warp it so that it took on the shape of the other fish, that we could get something which mathematically was very simple. And so he said, we can think about this if we project a rectangular grid onto this fish, then we can ask, how do we need to deform this rectangular grid to transform this piranha into this piranha? And this example was that a very simple shear transform would do that. So something which to us visually, aesthetically, appears to be a a striking qualitative difference in the shape of the fish is, in mathematical sense, extremely simple. Um, a slightly more complicated example is these three crocodile snouts, where again they, they, they look very different, but the idea is that if we take one of them as a referent and project a rectangular grid onto it, and we ask how do we need to deform this grid to transform this crocodile snout into these snouts, that we get things which mathematically, geometrically speaking, are actually quite simple. Um, and I, I, Before I talk about applying this to my data, I want to give another another type of example. Um, So here we have a map. um, And it's a map which, as is well known, is spatially distorted. So the typographical elegance of the tube map, um, the fact that it it, uh, has so few um, acute angles makes it beautiful and useful, but it also, as is well known, distorts the relative spatial position of bits of London. So if we think about what is the relationship between London as it actually is to London as depicted in the tube map, we can think about this, an exact analogy to Thompson's idea, as a transformation. We can say, how do we need to transform the true geography of London to transform London as it actually is to London as it's depicted in the tube map. And I'll just say that this has a lot of formal analogies to the sort of data that I've just described in our localization experiments, in the sense that we have an actual shape, which has landmarks. So we have Russell Square Station, which has an XY position here in in Google Maps in the true geography of London, and it has an XY pixel position here on the tube map so does Victoria Station so we can think about both London as it actually is and London in its depiction in the tube map as consisting of a sets of homologous landmarks that have spatial positions in both locations and so the same sorts of things which I which I argued were important to remove from our data to isolate the representation of handshape, we also want to remove in this case. So for example, the same way that I sort of said we want to remove the constant error of localization, it wouldn't be a fair, I mean, this, this tube map is in fact in London, but suppose that I were giving this talk in Oxford, it wouldn't be a fair criticism of the tube map to say, well, this tube map is in Oxford, but London is in London. In the same way that I can say, well, fine, we're near Russell Square, but, It's not a criticism to say, well, look, in your map, Victoria Station is here in a lecture hall in Bloomsbury, but in reality, Victoria Station is all the way on the other side of central London. That's an obviously nonsensical um, characterization. For a map to be accurate, it does not need to be spatially coextensive or located in the same location as the thing it's meant to depict. So we want to remove translational differences between the maps. The second thing that doesn't matter is it's not a fair criticism to say, well, London is laid out along the ground, but this is, is oriented vertically um, so that there's a rotational difference. That's not a fair criticism of the spatial verticality of the tube map. Or similar, if we took the tube map, you couldn't say, well, look, you've got the, the top part of the map pointing to the south. Um, so, so it's obviously rubbish that's the, in order to, to represent London in a coherent way or an undistorted way, the map does not need to be rotated in the direction that London is. Um, the third thing, which maybe is a bit of a difference to what I, what I um, is describing in my experiment, is it's not a fair criticism of the tube map to say, well, your tube map here is, what, four square meters, but London is vast, um, so the tube map is dramatically smaller than, than London is, um, is obviously not a fair criticism of the map. The maps are meant to be smaller. So, in order to compare the distortions, there are lots of properties of the tube map that are different from London as it actually is, but which we need to subtract out if we want to sort of say how does London. Um, distort the true geography, or how does the tube map distort the true geography of London? We want to remove differences in translation, or differences in location. We want to translate them so they're on top of each other. We want to remove differences in rotation. We want to turn them so that they're spatially aligned. And we want to remove differences in scale so that we can pick out how does the shape of London differ in the two maps. So we can do this exactly the way Thompson described. We can superimpose a rectangular grid on the true geography of London. And we can ask, how do we need to stretch this grid to transform London as it actually is into London as depicted by the tube map? We can think about this as a transformation. This is the result. know there are a few interesting properties for those of you who who know london well angel station here is yanked in much closer to king's cross than it actually is um southwest london almost doesn't exist on the tube map um i'll refrain from any further comment on that um you can see that there's this interesting sort of yanking in of hyde park where the four stations running along the north edge of hyde park on the central line are much closer together on the tube map than they are in reality, which leads to this this stretching in. The details, there's a sort of weird black hole um, running through the city of London. The details (laughs) don't matter. The the point is, is that we can think about this using a, a Darcy Thompson style distorted grid as a way of visually depicting the spatial distortion of a representation of something compared to the actual shape of that thing. And so now going back to the data I described a few slides ago, we can say let's take a, a, a purely rectangular coordinate grid, superimpose it on the true shape of subjects hands, and we can then ask how do we need to stretch or deform this grid to transform the actual shape of the subjects hands into the shape of their hands as they represent their hands to be. And we get something that looks like this. So this just shows you essentially what I what I told you before, that the hand is stretched along its width and contracted along its length. And I think just due to time, I'll skip right to the, the end. So um, So I've described two examples that show that, in contrast to the idea that you might get from the list I showed at the beginning of all of the bizarre um, disorders, clinical disorders, in which people have the most bizarre delusions about their body. um, But in fact, that's not a sure sign of pathology or disease. All of us, to some extent, have quite strikingly distorted representations of our body. And across a range of tasks, only two of which I described this evening, we generally find a fat bias, a bias to perceive the body as wider than it is. I talked about experiments on the hand, but we also have experiments on the face, and indeed, on the body as a whole. And I didn't get to this, but um, in contrast to this, when we show people images of bodies and ask, you know, is this fatter or thinner than yours, people are generally quite accurate on that. And so what this suggests is that these distortions Reflects something implicit in the way we represent the body, um, distinct from our subjective body image. Um, And as I argued in the beginning, um, we think that these may reflect low-level aspects of the geometry of the way that the somatosensory system represents the body surface. And I I want to finish by saying thank you to the many people who have helped me. Um, It was intimidating putting this list together and humbling because I realized the sheer number of people who have, have helped me and been influential um, on me in my career. This is by no means an, an exhaustive list, but there are three people I want to, to, to single out um, and thank. The first is Professor Bennett Berkenthal, um, who's now at Indiana University, um, but uh, was my PhD supervisor at the University of Chicago um, and uh, was extremely influential on, on how I how I approach what I do. Um, the second is my colleague Stella Lorenko. She and I were PhD students together. She's now a professor at Emory University, um, and we've been working together. Well, I've worked with her longer than, than anyone else, essentially. Um, and finally, Patrick Haggard, who um, I'm, I'm delighted could be here tonight, who is my postdoc supervisor while I was at UCL, and, um, and who has been extremely influential, certainly in my pursuing this line of work um, on which she was a. Um, Co author most of the, the work that I talked about tonight. Um, and uh, thank you, Patrick. And thank you for coming.
2: Well, <laughs> thank you, Matt, for this exceptionally clear and exciting and entertaining uh, presentation over the last hour. I-, I won't keep you long because we will be going for some uh, glasses of wine in in, in in two minutes or three minutes. I just want to make two or three, no two, two points about Matt. Uh, the first is that as uh, David Latchman has said before that Matt is obviously an extremely productive and creative scientist. I mean, looking at his CV makes almost everybody everybody's heart sink in terms of the number of publications in the few years that he had already uh, had available for his uh, career, so that's definitely quite impressive. But I think what's also important for us as his colleagues in the department is really that he's a great colleague And by that I mean that he is actually not just a wonderful scientist, but also that he doesn't shirk other kinds of duties that may be slightly less glamorous in the department. I mean, uh, we are all happy as uh, academics and scientists, but we're also all aware that some aspects of our jobs are actually quite mundane, sort of clerical duties, administrative duties, sitting on committees, doing things that are necessary, but not necessarily exceptionally exciting. And Matt is definitely one of the people who always is always available and willing to actually do these duties, which is something that is uh, notable, and uh, that's why I'm noting this here. And that's really one of the reasons <laughs> why we are extremely happy to have him here. Uh, the other thing um, just starts with a sort of personal memory that I have. It's actually my first memory for when when Matt came to came to Birkbeck, I came to his uh, office, I think I was his, your, your. what was it, your ju- um, mentor, that's right, yes, we have this sort of mentoring system here where, where junior colleagues are being paired with slightly more senior, much more senior colleagues and of course in uh, Matt's case the mentoring was extremely successful. <laughs> 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 but. Uh, the thing that I remember, uh, I mean, just coming to his office, and, and of course there we had the sort of usual thing, lots of books about neuroscience and statistics, but the thing that struck me was that there were quite a lot of books uh, that there were actually modern en- English and American literature, which I found I really enjoyed seeing that, I sort of, and so we talked a little bit about the fact that he's actually reading literature, and um, I'm not saying that this is extremely unusual for an experimental psychologist, but I found it quite uh, um, noticeable, and, and also because I really think that what we are doing as experimental psychologists, and not just Matt, but also, and maybe in particular Matt, is actually not that far away from, from arts in the sense that we, as experimental psychologists, are actually sort of often dealing with rather nebulous concepts. I mean, the body image may be one of them. And we're sort of trying to make flesh or sort of bring these, these concepts into life by actually trying to design experimental procedures. And very often we find that when we're actually trying to test something, the way that we think about things suddenly is, is, is suddenly transformed and maybe becomes rather different from the way that things looked when we were just looking on paper. And on the other hand, experimental psychology can also be beautiful, like art. There can be beautiful experiments, and it's actually quite difficult to really figure out what what this is. I mean, for me, personally, beautiful experiments are simple, sort of stripping away unnecessary details, or maybe arranging sort of familiar parts into new patterns that are interesting and uh, and maybe surprising. And, well, like in art, actually, Beautiful experimental designs or beautiful experimental procedures, you can really only know that you get them when you see them. And I think maybe the most sort of heartfelt compliment that I can make to Matt is that some of his experiments were indeed truly beautiful, simple and beautiful. And in that sense, I really think that he's a great experimental scientist, he's a great colleague. We are very lucky at Birkbeck that we have him as our colleague. And I think we should now all go and have a glass of wine to celebrate his achievements. Thank you very much.